0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah, beginning in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, there is a term called patellar reflex. And it's that sudden, uncontrollable sort of kicking movement that your leg does when some sort of sharp, direct strike impacts right below the kneecap right there. I didn't know this, but it's a diagnostic test to determine not just the health of your leg or your knee, but it's actually a diagnostic test to determine the health of your central nervous system, like what's going on throughout your body. But we also have a a term for it. It's called knee-jerk reaction, which is both a literal term but also a figurative one. Knee-jerk reaction refers to what you do automatically, that that impulse without thought, your sudden instinctual response to being impacted, how you spring to action before you even consciously think about how you're going to respond. And like that diagnostic test that you may take in the doctor's office, your knee-jerk reaction to sudden abrasive situations is often going to be an indication of your internal health. Your, your central operating system, or as the Bible referred to that, as your heart. Dallas Willard once said that actions are not imposed on who we are, but are expressions of who we are. They come out of our heart and the inner realities it supervises and interacts with. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actions, and maybe more specifically, reactions, reveal what your heart trusts. What you hope in, what your heart longs for, what you desire most. The habits that have been formed at the deepest level in your being. And what we see here in Nehemiah is is what one commentator referred to as a reflexive response. Nehemiah is suddenly struck by very bad news. Nehemiah has just this strange abrasive start. Bad news that impacts his people, bad news that impacts his homeland and his faith community, news of great uh, trouble and ruin for his people. And what is his knee-jerk reaction? What is his reflex? Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer isn't just some sort of afterthought. Prayer doesn't come into the equation where it's like, well, I guess there's nothing else we can do but pray now. No, for the person of faith, Prayer is a first response. As soon as I heard these words, some people fight, some people flight, some people freeze. Nehemiah falls before the Lord in humility and boldness in his prayer. A few weeks ago, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills collapsed on the field. I'm sure a lot of the sports fans here heard about that, maybe even witnessed it live. And people were reacting blaming the NFL almost immediately. People took to the internet to have debates about the impacts of vaccines. People were responding immediately. But there was actually a commentator on national television that paused and prayed. Prayed. And another commentator named Nick Wright, uh, who admits that he's not religious pointed out that in that moment, as he was watching and his, he was listening and he was trying to figure out how he would respond to something so tragic and so like alarming, he said, he admits that he was envious. He was envious of believers. He was envious that he didn't have a spiritual foundation to fall onto in a moment of tragedy. He was envious of people who confidently pray, immediately pray. And so today what I want to do is ask how we can become a prayerful people, not who leave prayer to sort of like, well, if all else fails, then we'll pray, but whose reflexive response is prayer. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the posture that Nehemiah takes. We'll look at the prayer that Nehemiah makes. And then lastly, we'll look at the promises that Nehemiah stakes it all on. So let's begin here. The, uh, the posture that Nehemiah takes. Before we jump in to look at this model prayer, it's important that we see his posture here. And by posture, I mean both his physical posture, he gives us some physical descriptions of what he did, but also his spiritual disposition. Verse four is this beautiful movement as Nehemiah intentionally positions himself before God in humility and dependence. And what he records is that he first, he sits down. He sat down. He took an unhurried posture. Think about how we say, hey, sit down, stay a while. When we sit down, we are resisting hurry. We are resisting immediate sort of reaction. There is always going to be this interaction between our physical posture and also our heart posture, whether it's kneeling, whether it's raising our hands, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing, what we do physically is often influencing what is happening internally, right? I can't automatically calm my heart. I cannot control my emotions. Ask my wife and my children about that one. But what can I do? I can, now don't sleep on this, this is so simple, I can sit down I can't control my emotions, neither can you, don't lie, but you can control your body. Sit, sat down. He positions his body to intentionally resist that sort of frantic, hurried, reactive motion that we are all so inclined to. I'm going to come into God's presence and settle down here. Number one, because this is where I want to be. But also, number two, because I don't trust myself to do anything else right now. I don't trust myself. It also says that he wept and he mourned for days. There will be a decisive moment where Nehemiah needs to act. And he will. But he first takes time, unhurried time, to mourn. Nehemiah, great leader that he is, he's not trying to be the tough guy. He's not trying to be the strong one, you know, that holds it all together for the sake of everyone else. No, he mourns, and for a long period of time, lament, which is a passionate expression of grief, is a very important part of the experience of the Christian life and has a very important place in the Bible. In fact, it's estimated that somewhere around two-thirds of the Psalms, 150 Psalms, two-thirds of those are Psalms of lament. Psalms like 126 that say, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. So what is Nehemiah doing right now? Nehemiah is doing what biblical lament has taught him to do. He is sowing his tears before God in hopes that he will reap joy. When it comes to tears, you're going to find two extremes today. On one end... And this may be maybe the trappings of prior generations, but I think it still maybe remains in some of us and some of our upbringings. But one of the encouragements that that you're going to hear is to avoid tears. Don't be sad. Stop reflecting on what's wrong. Focus on what's good. Look at all the people who have it so much worse than you. What are you doing? The other extreme is to become unbridled with your tears to broadcast your tears. I'm really hurting right now. I'm experiencing this really tragic thing in my life. So I don't know anything else to do other than to tell everyone about it. I've got this really intimate, like painful thing in my life. I'm gonna post it online for everyone to see. I need to be the most authentic me. I need to make sure that everyone knows how I am feeling right now. But both miss the point. Avoiding tears is going to have serious devastation in your life. It's going to lead to resentment. It's going to lead to cynicism. You're going to become a callous person. Don't do that. But also broadcasting your tears is maybe only going to lead to like fleeting experiences of therapeutic relief. But only sowing your tears is what the Bible promises will lead to a joyful future. What's Nehemiah doing? He's mourning. It also says he continues fasting, which is a voluntary abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. It's a a discipline that brings our mind and our heart and our bodies into alignment with devotion to God. It's a form of self-denial where we say no to a physical hunger so that we can say yes to a spiritual hunger, which is really important because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who hunger, and thirst for righteousness. And I don't know about you, but this is an acquired taste. Hunger and thirst for righteousness doesn't just come naturally for me. It's a discipline that comes often through fasting. We'll talk more about fasting in the Lenten season. It also lastly says that he did all of this persistently. He sat down, he wept, he fasted, he prayed for days. For days, even months. This, this isn't someone just checking off a number of spiritual disciplines so that they can get on to the real stuff. You know, we're going we're gonna to pray because we've got to. But I'm just like checking it on the, off the list so that I can get on to the important stuff. This is someone who understands where the real action happens. Before God. In the presence of God. This is someone who refuses to act until he knows that he has aligned with God's heart and God's will as revealed in God's word. Like Moses, hundreds of years before him, letting heaven know, I am not moving forward until I know that God is in this. Posture. Secondly, we see the prayer that Nehemiah makes. So he positions himself before God but he addresses God. And the prayer that he makes is very significant. And what we notice here is that this prayer, importantly, begins with adoration. Look with me again in verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I know from personal experience That it takes serious levels of discipline to consistently begin prayer in adoration. That is not my natural inclination. I think for most of us, we naturally begin prayers with requests. God, help me. God, i got this serious thing in my life. I need you. Don't get me wrong. I do not want to discourage anyone from simply just desperately crying out to God. But what I do want to encourage you to do is to pay attention to prayers in scripture. Prayers like Nehemiah's prayer. Prayers like the Lord's prayer. Because what you're going to find is that they often begin with God. Oh Lord, God of heaven. What is he doing? He is hinging his heart on heaven. This is who I pray to. This is the one who is able. This is the one who is enthroned above all, including this task ahead of me. This is what lifts our heads to begin to see beyond our needs, to see beyond our sin, to see beyond the brokenness around us. And it puts everything, including our own selves, in their proper place. When we begin prayer, focused on God in adoration we are put in our place not first I am not first God is first my situation isn't first God is first and so before we ask of God we praise God for who he is and who he'll always be he is great God is awesome God is the covenant keeper. God is steadfast in his love. It reminds ourselves that even our own love and our responsive obedience is a response to his character, to who he is and will always be. Begin with adoration. The second thing we see here in this prayer that Nehemiah makes is that then he confesses. He turns to confession. Look with me in verses six through seven. Let your ear be attentive sin, and rebellion towards God is the reason that God's people were in distress and ruin, then returning to God in repentance and faith was going to be the foundation of being rebuilt, was going to be the necessary step for being restored as God's people. And so Nehemiah gets right to confessing he is not beating around the bush he's not saying like what you know often leaders say well mistakes were made no we sinned now this is going to be difficult for many of us on multiple levels number one like let's admit it no one finds it easy to verbalize words like these sinned acted very corruptly We have broken your commands and your statutes and your rules. What I found personally is that people love it when we talk about sin and salvation generally. We are sinners, everyone's a sinner, God loves sinners. Forgiveness of sin is available to all. But the moment that you start to challenge particular sin and call people to repentance, whoa, hell hath no fury, like someone held accountable. What? Me? Are you calling me a sinner? Yeah, I thought that, like, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Apart from genuine repentance, turning away from our sin towards God, there is no forgiveness. But secondly, this is going to be difficult because Nehemiah is confessing the sins of his people. We have a hard enough time repenting and confessing our own sins, let alone corporate sins confession generational sin the moment that happens it's like we're like shaggy it wasn't me (laughs) but you're it wasn't me nehemiah wasn't even alive now catch this nehemiah nor his father were even alive when the sin and judgment that he mentions here occurred But he knows what we need to know today, that we have inherited a legacy. It is ours, whether we know it or not. Nehemiah has inherited the broken history of his people. We say things like, can we just like keep that in the past? Why are you always trying to bring up things from the past? I wasn't even alive back then. You're always talking about this history. You're always talking about what happened in our nation. It's now. Live in the present. Stop talking about the past. People are even going to do that this weekend as we celebrate the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Just just leave that stuff in the past. That's prior generations. But like in Jerusalem, the fallout of the past, the rubble still remains. The brokenness is still here. And while none of us may have been there personally, The past still lives with us in so many different ways, whether we are benefiting from the past or it's to our detriment. The past still lives with us right now. And it's likely that we still, in some measure, walk in the sins of our fathers. What's also happening here, this is a gospel glimpse. See, Nehemiah is identifying with the sins of his people. This is a very important biblical theme, both Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's actually a shadow of a greater leader who would come to identify with the sins of his people. Not just asking for their forgiveness, but making the payment for that forgiveness. Jesus Christ on the cross, what is he doing? He is identifying with the sins of humanity. In an even greater measure, Nehemiah was complicit. Nehemiah meant it when he said it. He was a sinner. He had sinned against God. Nehemiah had inherited the sinful patterns of his father. But Jesus was the perfect, spotless lamb of God, holy in every way. And yet he identifies so closely with our sins that he is willing to die for them. He's not just confessing them for us. He carried them for us. So that we could be restored to God and brought into new life. And when we realize that this is something that Jesus has gone before us into, when we are struck by the way that Jesus identifies with us, the more willing we'll be humble to be humble and and to identify ourselves with the sins of others. The more willing we will be able to say with conviction every week that we gather and confess sin we have sinned the third thing we see about this prayer in nehemiah is that it's intercession this is a prayer of intercession nehemiah will eventually get to praying very personal prayers for favor and success but the bulk of his prayer is actually interceding for others what is intercession The word intercession means quite simply to intervene or actually literally to stand between. So I want you to imagine with me a mother and her children and that mother placing, positioning herself between some sort of threat and her children, averting that danger. This is the picture of intercession that we're given. And in the same way, intercessory prayer is a sort of standing between, between danger, threat, and even judgment on one side. And then the people that we're praying for on the other. We are wedging between through prayer. This is what we're doing when we're praying for others. This is what we do when we're intervening. Lord, avert this danger. Lord, avert this threat. Lord, avert judgment and condemnation. Forgive them. There's a scene from a movie, Gravity, which I believe is still my wife's least favorite movie. Um... Sandra Bullock is uh, an astronaut, her character's name is Ryan Stone, and she's stranded in space in this abandoned space station, she's barely alive, she's freezing, she's on the brink of death, and she's trying to communicate back to earth, you know, Houston, do copy, Mayday, Mayday, do copy, and there's a man on earth in some sort of like tundra, on a CB radio who doesn't even speak English and he begins to interact with her and he has no idea what she's saying, no idea. And it gets very emotional, she, she begins to monologue. These are like her final words. And she says, I'm gonna die. I know we're all gonna die, everyone knows that, but I'm gonna die today. And the thing is, I'm still scared. I'm really scared, nobody will mourn for me. And listen to this, and no one will pray for my soul. And she asks the man who clearly can't understand what she's saying, will you mourn for me? Will you say a prayer for me? As tears come down her eye and immediately freeze and sort of float off. She says, I mean, I'd say a prayer for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. No one ever taught me how to pray. No one ever taught me how to pray. And it's actually, it's a bit of a haunting question if you think about it, especially When we consider the countless men and women and children in serious distress, will you pray for me? When we consider those who need the grace and rescue of Jesus, will you pray for me? When we consider people that have never been taught to pray, will you pray for me? See, this is another gospel glimpse here, because for the Christian, What motivates us to pray for others, what motivates us to intercede isn't just the need. It isn't just the haunting cries of people. What motivates us to pray is when we remember that Jesus is praying for us. That Jesus right now is interceding for us. Did you know that? Jesus once and for all interceded for us on the cross in his atoning sacrifice. He averted danger by absorbing it in our place but also the Bible tells us that through his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the father he continues to make intercession for us the apostle Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 8 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for who? For us. Lastly, let's look at the promise that Nehemiah stakes it all on. One of the remarkable things about Nehemiah's prayer is how bold his prayer is. It's straight to the point. It's very direct. Uh, Did I say Paul? Nehemiah is like ready and willing to ask very big things. He knows exactly what to pray in this dire moment, but how? How is Nehemiah such a bold, effective prayer like this? And the answer is that he knows God's promises. It's evident that he knows God's promises. Now, I have to admit, I've prayed a lot of prayers for people where I had no idea what the outcome was going to be. Prayers for a specific kind of physical healing. Prayers for an opportunity. Prayers that someone would get the job. Prayers for a particular kind of provision. Prayers for God to open up certain doors. And these aren't bad prayers. These are important prayers that we pray for one another. But they are prayers with uncertain outcomes. But then there are prayers like Nehemiah's. And here's what makes Nehemiah's prayer so powerful. He is reciting God's covenant promises. These aren't Nehemiah's wishes. These aren't even Nehemiah's own words. They're God's. He's plagiarizing the scripture. He's lifted it right out of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Look with me again in verses 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, and I quote you God. He's teetering the line of irreverent if you ask me let me remind you what you said, not me, you. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. Whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's reciting the promises of God. Both the negative promises, right? If my people are unfaithful, they will be scattered. Guess what? God keeps those promises too. But his redemptive promises. If they repent. If they return to God in faith and obedience. He will gather them and bring them home. No matter how far off they've gone. Let me ask you this. Why do you think our prayers lack so much power today? Just get honest. Our prayers are kind of weak. Our prayers are weak. Why do our prayers lack so much power today? And I think the answer is because they're lacking God's promises. Why aren't we seeing answers to prayers like we saw in prior generations and we read about in Christian history and we see in the scriptures? I think it's maybe because we're trying to hold God to promises that he never made. Because unlike prior generations, we are wildly unaware of God, what God has actually told us. Wildly unaware of what God actually has promised. Why are we afraid to pray bold, big prayers? Because prayer will only be as big as our vision of God. And if we're to be honest, I think our vision of God is just too small. Remember your word, Lord. Remember what you promised your servant Moses. Remember what we have you in writing. This is Nehemiah's confidence. That God keeps his promises. That God is a man of his word. And if God said it, then I can believe it. And if God said it, then I can pray it with confidence. If God said it, I can stake my everything on it. This is the essence of faith. Martin Luther once said that faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. But his faith, it's saying, here's my chips. I'm going all in on Christ. Here's my chips. Here's my everything. It's not a lot, but it's all that I am. I'm putting it all on the promises of God. The book of Nehemiah is not asking you to be mighty, The book of Nehemiah is not asking you to be the wisest. The book of Nehemiah is not even asking you to be a great leader. We may not be any of those things by the time we die. But it is, however, calling us to stake it all on God. On his character. On his promises. And specifically today on his son. In whom all the promises of God find their yes and there amen now and forever amen let's pray